Welcome back, everybody, to the Inking Out Loud podcast. This is episode 48, covering Iron Fist by Aaron Alston, the second of the Wraith Squadron X-Wing books. I am your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my wife and special guest, Lauren McCaffrey. Hey, everybody. So, uh, yeah, today we are covering the second, as I said, uh, second Wraith Squadron book, and... You know, this one is a lot of fun. Do you agree? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed this one. I feel like this is where it kind of hits its stride, this series. Sure, yeah. And so, just to kind of run through a quick summary of this book, uh, it picks up pretty soon after where Wraith Squadron left off. The Wraiths are back on Coruscant after successfully taking out Admiral Tridget and the Implacable. And their task is to figure out what Zinj is up to. So they have a little kind of brainstorming session and come up with the idea to go undercover as pirates and try to get Zinj's attention because during their previous mission, they discovered Zinj was interested in other pirates. So they do eventually get hired by Zinj and... uh, help him steal a Super Star Destroyer, an Executor-class Star Dreadnought, from the Kuat Drive Yards before setting him up for a trap and destroying the new uh, Star Destroyer. Meanwhile, uh, kind of woven into all of this, Lara Notzel comes into the game, also known as Gera Petithel, the Imperial Lieutenant from the last book, who betrayed Min Donos' old squadron. And she goes undercover and infiltrates the wraiths before realizing how kind of how nasty and how dishonorable Zinge is and decides to become a real wraith and and joins them more or less permanently. I love her arc here. It <laughs> it really is is good. Yeah, so do you want to start with Lara? Sure, sure. Okay. Okay. So Lara oh, slash Gara slash what are her other names? I'm trying to remember. There was one Coruscant so she was, name. She was Chien Mazine when she was undercover uh, with the New Republic when she betrayed Talon Squadron. And then she brings up an old identity, like a brief identity, when she was in training with Imperial Intelligence named Kearney Slane. Kearney. That's right. Okay. Which, who is important for the next book as well? Yeah. So I love, like in the beginning, obviously she meets Face, right? And um, he sees her as a victim, as Admiral Tridget's concubine, whatever. Uh, Fanon. Is that what it is? It was Fanon, hitting on her in the hospital. Fanon. Yeah. Dang it. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah. Yeah, so he hits on her. Um, They want to help her out. They come up with a plan to take out um, this corrupt official who's training starfighters slash also has a black market scheme going, mm-hmm. uh, who was referenced in the last book. Yeah, with... he was the one who um, kind of targeted Tyria during her training. Yep, yep. So they want to take him down. And I, oh, I love how she sets everything up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, she sort of does it on her own. You know, she she has the infrastructure in place, the support from Face and Fanon, and they have a, a good plan for how to handle it. But she kind of says, no, you know, I'm going to just take this all into my own hands and 
and do it even better. Sets up her own recording, gets information from his his data pad, just mm-hmm. takes him out, and then and then catches him like, ah, uh, he he knocks her out at the very end, mm-hmm. thinking he can get away with it by saying like, oh, she's crazy or, and how she <laughs> was like making advances on him and yeah 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 oh I love the beginning of that. But that's only, like, the first couple chapters of her, because she does make her way to Wraith Squadron and joins them. And all of that was done when she was still planning on betraying them. Yep. Yep. I, I and I actually, I bookmarked one scene. I think it was page 130. Yeah. Okay. 132. Where she starts to think, maybe she could just be Lara. Maybe... Never go back to Lieutenant Gara Pedithel. That poor, unhappy creature, truly among the dead of the Star Destroyer Implacable. Oh, I love that. I mean, where she starts to realize that I really like the Wraiths and I've never belonged anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I I betrayed Tridget because he was a nasty, nasty person. And you know what, Zinge is pretty much the same yeah and and to her a lot of it is internalized as honor uh the the kind of operative moment in her turn to the wraiths in this book is during uh the lavasar mission and she's thinking about how she's flying right behind wedge antilles and his shields are down and (gasps) it would take one pull of her trigger and she'd become the most famous imperial pilot ever for killing wedge antilles and she realizes I can't do that. That would be dishonorable to shoot him in the back like that. And then starts engaging with this idea of honor and and goes back to how she thought Tridget was being dishonorable by betraying the 35,000 men and women on Implacable and self-destructing the ship without telling them. And then realizes Zinge is using these same kind of underhanded tactics by setting up a, a mission to make it look like he's attacking or or it's like a location on this world is his so that the new republic will come in and kill a bunch of civilians for him and then he'll get to come in and act the hero and she realizes how dishonorable that is and she goes i can't work for somebody that dishonorable you know so i found the scene where she has wedge under her guns Mm -hmm. says she could eliminate him with a twitch of the finger it should have been tempting yet somehow it wasn't such an attack would be treacherous. She laughed. Listen to yourself. There's no, no such thing as treachery, only efficiency. That was one of the basic tenets of the Imperial Intelligence. And she had lived by those words. Yeah. And <laughs> and this is her decision to abandon that and yep. choose to lead an honorable life. But the most fascinating thing for me about Lara's character is her internal landscape. Her identity and... And this constant struggle between Lara and Gera, and then aspects of Kearney coming in, and her struggling to really define who she is. Because while she's been Gera Petithel, and she was born Gera Petithel, so much of that personality was manufactured and indoctrinated by her training in Imperial Intelligence. And this is the first time that she's really had a chance to just be herself and discover herself. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like he did a great job with her, and her character is compelling. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, it's tough you know, reading through these books. Uh, obviously, in the first Wraith Squadron book, Kel Tainer's the main character, right? Right. Yeah, and then in this one, though, those lines kind of blur. We barely get any points of view from Kel. We still get a fair amount from Wedge, like we did in Wraith Squadron, but we start getting more from Face and from Lara and even from Shala. And, and Fanon. Uh, we don't get any points of view from Fanon. Well, okay, from Face. It's Face. Yeah. Seeing Fanon. Yeah, and but so it becomes, instead of Kel's story with a little bit of Wedge, now it's the Squadron's story. But even then, I feel like Lara is the driving force. She's the best character in this book. And her story, her conflicts, are the most compelling. Well, I I didn't feel that way until she started getting into the race. So, like, Fanon and Face were important in the beginning. To, like, helping her get into the race? Yeah, and, like, losing Fanon. Well, that happens after their... That's, like, midway through the book. Well, she gets brought in, like, because like he Like, right after, yeah. 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 Um, but, yeah, that... Well, do you want to move then to, like, Face and Fanon, kind uh, of? Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> that so, hurt. <laughs> it's funny. When I first read this book and, and reread it and reread it, I mean, you can see you're holding my book right now that I've had since I was probably 10 or 11, and this book is falling apart. I mean, the, the spine is completely <laughs> cracked. It's The book is broken in half, held together by, like, a scrap of paper. The cover is folded over so many times and torn and corners are missing yeah it's i've i obsessively reread these books when i was younger and <laughs> when i was reading this one in particular i hated reading like I, it would get to the point in my rereads i once it got to face like going to ground on Halmad and hiding his interceptor oh. i would just skip why until he's back with race because i hated reading that whole um scene with fanon dying mm. back then i didn't like fanon as a character and i was i was like this is so um superfluous like why why is this whole sequence in there and then i reread it just a couple of years ago and realized like wow this is some of the best writing in the whole series yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so emotionally powerful and when bringing it together with the scene the night before when Face goes to check on Fanon and he acts like he has company in his room and and he, uh, actually he's just drinking by himself. Okay, and, so I bookmarked that too, I think. Oh, okay, okay. Seems so, devastating. So it starts with he's hitting on Lara. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she turns him down. <laughs> yep. And, oh, man, it, like, he... Well, it's like the line when Face walks in and, and he's like, you know, Tan, what is going on? And, and he just says, she wasn't interested, Face. Oh, I have it. I have it. Face saw his partner do something uncharacteristic. Fanon slowly settled into an attitude of stillness so profound that it would have been difficult for an observer to tell whether he was alive or dead had he not been breathing. Other than the slow rise and fall of his chest, nothing moved. His one human eye was closed, and his posture gradually slumped into an attitude of profound resignation, of complete defeat. Oh. Yeah, like... Oh, oh. that hurts. 
Like, it's, and, and you find out, you know, as it continues, it's not just about being rejected by this one girl. It's about being rejected every single time. And seeing all of his dreams, you know, from when he was a young doctor and had all of his pieces, <laughs> yeah. all of his limbs, to, like, being seen as just this undesirable, nothing to offer... And it goes oh. beyond the like the physical aspect of it. It's yes. that he recognizes his own mortality. Each injury he has, and each new prosthetic part he has to, you know, acquire. And and he kind of makes it, you know, meta where he starts talking about how there's no future for him, and that women aren't attracted to him not because. You know, he's bad looking or he has prosthetics or whatever. It's because he has no future and they see no future. And, of course, that's driven home in a really fatalistic sense when he <sighs> dies the very next day. But his death is even kind of intimated as something that could have been avoided were he not so fatalistic about himself. That if he had maybe just wanted to live more he might have stuck it out until face got him back up to uh you know hawkbat base and got him medical help but instead he he was so determined to not have a future that he just sort of was like i'm i'm injured i have internal bleeding this is it i saw this coming and so it is mm. you know yeah that that really got to me when you read it to me yeah. And then second time around, also extremely painful. And I don't think I felt the pain of the first book in this same way. No. Ugh. There's nothing, at least I think, there's nothing in Wraith Squadron that is emotionally as powerful as this scene in Iron Fist. I think maybe the closest is Jasmine, Jasmine Akbar's death. Yeah. But even then, it's more about Kel in that scene. It's it's his desperation and his inability to save her that's important. Because Jasmine's never really developed as a character. She's just kind no, of there. No, you know. I mean, she's she's intelligence for them, and she's helpful, and she yeah, can do things. But she, we we don't know what her her drive is. Well, we know a little bit of her drive, I mean, but we don't we don't know what makes her her. Yeah. We never get points of view from her. We we only get her like. In a couple of like ancillary scenes where she's just sort of in the background. There's only one scene when she talks to Wedge. Um, or rather when she talks to her her uncle, to Admiral Akbar. Yeah. And she complains about how she's been given desk jobs and all of this. And she wants to be a real Starfighter pilot. But that's one scene in the book. She's so... Pushed to the side. Yeah. Whereas Fanon, uh, similarly to Jesmine, he doesn't have any points of view. But he's involved he's all over the place in these books he's hanging around with face with the pranks and <laughs> he's crucial in the opening scene of iron fist and like thwarting the trap and, and like cutting the throat of the fake military policeman yeah. and you know and he's he's constantly hanging around with the pilots and being involved in scenes he's the one who comes up with the plan for lara you know, and so there's a lot more at stake with his death than there was with Jesmond's in Wraith Squadron. Uh, and, and the result is this scene, I think, has a far magnified impact. 
Yeah, yeah. And not only that, but it's it's a long, drawn-out death where Face is fighting the whole time to save him, mm-hmm. running from, you know, the Imperials, Zindra's forces. And, and their conversations when Fanon is, like, slowly dying on the back of the speeder bike and Face is dragging it along and talking to him, like, kind of over his shoulder... Oh, so painful. It hurt. Where Face is trying to be upbeat and trying to distract him and keep him engaged and present. And then and then he says, you know, he says something again and then Fanon doesn't reply. And he repeats it and Fanon doesn't reply. And it's just like, oh, no. And then on top of that, he has to go back and destroy his body because it's identifiable. Right. And, like, him just pulling the trigger. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Yep. And how Fanon's lying there, his human eye closed, but his prosthetic eye is open and burning red, just staring up at face, and you're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> but yeah. I feel like Aaron Alston uses that to really push face. I think it was done well. Yeah, yeah. You know, because Face has to stop. There is no account to be settled, is what he says. Where he's like, you have to stop punishing the the little boy that you were, the actor that encouraged people to recruit. Who, yeah, and, like, how how much of that was just completely out of Face's control? Seriously. But Face has this huge emotional hang-up on it, and... And, and that plays in. Like, I love how this scene, this central moment, helps Face become the leader that he is. Because it's really in this book that we see him uh, taking the initiative more and being a planner and a good role model and support for the pilots flying under him as an officer. When he's, you know, he becomes General Cargan of the Hawkbats. And then... You know, so he has this like dual role. He's a lieutenant in Wraith Squadron and General Cargan. So when they're undercover, he has to be in charge. And then it becomes um, intertwined, so to speak, when they go to Iron Fist and meet Zinj and Castan Don sneaks aboard and majorly screws up. And it's at a point where Face, you know, they, they all could have died. And Dia ruthlessly shoots Kasten and saves them. Uh, and But it's up to Face to keep her from killing herself afterward. <laughs> and so we, we see Face in situations where he's coming with good strategic decisions as well as emotional decisions for his pilots and being a friend and being somebody that can be depended upon not just in war, but in... In their day-to-day lives. And then Wedge recognizes it, too. Mm-hmm. And he's like, stop punishing yourself for this mission going wrong. It wasn't your fault. It wasn't my fault. But if there was going to be... If there were going to be somewhere, somebody to blame, it would be me. Because I'm in charge of this unit. Yeah. Not you, Face. You were in charge of this mission. He's like, ultimately, the responsibility falls on Kasten. Because he's Kasten. the one who made the choices. And and Face is like, oh, but I could have I could have checked to make sure Kasten was on station. And Wedge is like, you did, you you tasked somebody to go check his room, and he had set up like a mechanical dummy in his bed so it looked like he was sleeping. Yep, yep. 
And he had put it so that he was raw. Off duty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. yeah, and I I like how Face takes a more central role in this book. You know, he, he gets more time. He got a little bit of time in Race Squadron, but a lot of it was like, you know, uh, hijinks, so to speak. It was him being Lieutenant Nerol or Captain Derillion. Which I love. You know, or or it was him pranking Grinder. So the focus on face and Iron Fist is a lot more compelling. And I think he's a better character than Kel, I'll be honest. I like Face's internal struggle more than Kel's kind of performance anxiety in Wraith Squadron. Do you agree? I feel like I can't relate to Kel as much as I can to Face. Hmm. He seems like like this is performance anxiety is not necessarily something I deal with in that way. And I don't quite understand his situation. I've never lost, like, a parent right. to that, like, in a situation like that. I don't know. It's... Kel, Kel could be better developed, is what is what I'm trying to say. Okay, okay. Um, but moving on with characters, let's talk about Shala a little bit. Oh, all right, all right. Because she's one of the new wraiths. She's brought in to fill the holes in the roster after Grinder and Fallon and Jasmine died. And she's very capable. Extremely capable. <laughs> <laughs> I love that introductory scene when, you know, she's announced by Wedge and Kel just like bangs his head against the wing of his fighter and everybody looks at him. He's like, remember how I told you there was like a five foot nothing girl who used to throw me all over the mats back in commandos? Yeah, this is her sister. <laughs> and Shala's like, yeah, I'm better than she is. Yeah. I'm like, great. <laughs> great. Oh, but, but we see that she's a lot more than just, you know, a hand-to-hand combat specialist. She's really good in tight situations and improvising both at the beginning of the book when they're stealing the TIE Interceptors and on board Razor's Kiss, where she's uh, so on top of things that she performs her task for Zinj perfectly and performs her task for the Wraiths. And even more than that, goes above and beyond, steals an interceptor, and performs the kind of key action in the whole climactic battle where she takes out the shield projectors that allows the Razor's Kiss to be destroyed. So I also love in in that kind of scene where she has her father's voice in her head mm-hmm. talking to her, like walking her through her situation. Like these guys might, you know, stab you in the back, but you're going to be ready for it and you're valuable right now and this is how you're valuable and this is how you're going to go about this infiltration. Yeah, and... That ties back to her conflict, her internal conflict, where she also has a bit of performance anxiety like Kel, but it manifests in a very different way. It's it's much more of a, I know I'm capable, but when I'm put under pressure, will I be able to do it? And she proves to herself in this book, yes. She, she, hmm, how do I put it? She doesn't hesitate when hesitation is the wrong thing you know she is very decisive even when decisions are risks and 
gains the confidence through that to ultimately make this decision instead of obeying her orders and going and getting in an escape pod to go back to the hangar, whatever, five kilometers down the 19-kilometer ship, and stow herself into a TIE interceptor on board the bridge, like like on top of the bridge. With with an explosion. Oh, yeah, to steal the interceptor. Yeah, but I'm saying, like, she steals it and then does this crazy terrain following flying. Oh, yeah. And all the way back up and lands on top of the bridge. Like, it's such a risky, risky thing for her to do. But she has overcome her anxiety by this point of making these bold decisions. And so she ultimately is in position to deliver what is essentially the killing blow. Yeah. Yeah, she's crucial in that mission. And she talks herself through it, too. She's like, I could die here. Mm -hmm. This could be the wrong choice. But I'm going to do it because this could help us. Yeah. So, yeah, I I like Shala a lot, and I think it was very deserved for her to get um, uh, the promotion at the end to lieutenant. Yes, yes. Definitely. So, um, are there any other characters you want to talk about? Do you want to talk about casting? Sure. Uh, so, he starts out, um, he talks about it, his scene in Coruscant when the Empire fell. Yeah, when the Emperor was killed. Yeah, because yep. he was in some sort of backwater... I don't know. What was his organization? Well, not Backwater. It was Rebel. He, was he wasn't... Right. But he wasn't part of the Rebel forces. He was oh, a part of his yeah. own... I mean, he was, he was in like a, an underground slicing cell, like a hacker yeah, cell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. what I meant. And, and he talks about how that affected him a lot. Like what, what the Imperials did on Coruscant yeah. when the Emperor fell and how traumatic it was. And then he gets called into Wedge's office and he has a scene where he doesn't want to be bunkmates with Piggy. Mm-hmm. He's like, he smells. Oh, okay. Well, nobody else thinks he smells. What, like, and, and Wedge kind of digs down, goes through his record and is like, oh, you have a problem with non-humans. Yeah. Got it. We're going to work on that. So you're going to stay bunkmates. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then he comes back and he's like, I have this idea. I'm going to put this code on Iron Fist and we're going to have data from them. And I want to do it with this mission. And Wedge says, no, no, that's, that's a bad choice. We will do this in a safer way. Because if you're wrong, you die. Everybody on the mission dies. Right. <laughs> yeah, Wedge kind of walked it through him, and he's like, look, if we do it your way, there are two options. One, you succeed, and we win spectacularly because of it. Or you fail, and we lose spectacularly because of it. If we do it my way, there are two options. One, we miss just one opportunity, and there are many more opportunities down the road. Or, we win spectacularly. You know, and so... Wedge is like, my situation is pretty much win-win. Yours is very much lose-win. And he, of course, being the insubordinate person that he is, 
goes ahead with it. And I wanted to ask you a question. Mm. That scene on board the uh, the fake bridge of Ironfest where they're eating dinner and Zinj asks the Hawkbats to kill Kasten. Oh, I couldn't Do breathe. Do you think that Kasten was still alive or was he dead? I think he was dead. I think I trust Dia. Okay. Because I think there are two ways to read that scene where it's Dia trying to convince herself that he was really dead and failing and that's why she tries to kill herself afterward no i i mean in the moment i thought he was alive and then afterwards where she talks about body language Mm -hmm. that's when i was like no he's dead and i trust i trust her evaluation of that so so a counterpoint to that though is that we're in the point of view of face who's another expert on body language and he thinks castan's alive yeah, but he's playing a character, and I think that kind of distracted him, maybe. Oh, not in that moment. I mean, he was fully out of that character. He was, like, getting ready to attack Zinj and, like, go out guns blazing. and. Yeah, but I think when they dragged Kasten in, he didn't know who he was. Until they well, turned he, him around. I mean, he's, yeah, he knew. And that's why he was like, oh, crap. We can't just kill our fellow pilot. We gotta, We gotta sacrifice ourselves now. Okay, another point. Dia's <laughs> assessment of body language kept her alive through her enslavement, mm-hmm. right? Face did it in more of a an arts fashion. So, I again, I trust Dia more than Face in body language. I mean, that's I a think. fair point. Although the very beginning of this book was Face saving all of them in a life and death situation by reading body language. Yes, but I think I think Dia <laughs> I think I trust Dia here. Okay. I really do. I mean, I don't think there's a I mean, I haven't asked Aaron Alston. I don't think anybody's ever like publicly asked him if there's an answer to this now question. Now I want to know. Dang it, Drew. But, you know, like he, I mean, he's dead now, so Dang it, Drew. I want but yeah, I, I think that's a, a really interesting character moment to grapple with. What does it mean for Dia and Face, whether he's dead or he's alive in that moment, or does it mean anything at all? <sighs> because Dia believed, or was at least trying to tell herself that she believed that he was dead. But yeah. I think that that plays in with Dia's character, where she is shown to be very bloodthirsty. She's ruthless when she needs to be, and I think she's the only Wraith who could have made that decision. In that moment, I don't yes. think any of the other Wraiths would have shot Kasten. No way Kel does it. No, no. way Face does it. Yeah. Ugh. So. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, that was another heavy moment. Oh yeah, there are several of them in this book. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I, I want to talk a little bit about Wedge. Um, okay. In this, he he doesn't get too much of a focus as far as like character development, um, even less than in Race Squadron. But there's one scene in particular that always stands out to me, and that was when the Wraiths are painting their interceptors on Hawkbat base, and Wedge is like walking through, and he sees Tyria put down her paintbrush and kiss Kel, and Wedge gets like annoyed, and he's he ready really to reprimand upset. them, and then he realizes he stops, and he's like. What, what am I doing? And has this introspective moment and realizes that he's jealous. Yep. He's not specifically jealous about Tyria, 
but he's jealous about having that kind of romantic attachment and that closeness with somebody, that intimacy, where he's never had, since his parents died years previously, he's never had a relationship to anchor himself to. He's had good friends. He's had, you know, Corin and Mirax Tarek and Ayella, but he never had somebody to make a home with, to make a life with. He's always just been the squadron commander where he's constantly living around death. And he's never had a relationship in his life that promotes life rather than death. So I didn't really notice it the first read. Um, but since we've been doing Starfighters of Atomar, mm-hmm. where that things change for Wedge, it really kind of highlighted that for that. me. Where I was like, oh my goodness. Yeah, Wedge, like Wedge has his mission. Mm-hmm. And that's it. He's all about duty. Like he's, he's a great commander. He's a great pilot. He's a great servant for the New Republic. But so much of his life is dedicated to external sources that he's not living for himself at all. And this is one of these early moments when he starts realizing this isn't like I'm not doing anything for me. Yeah, yeah, and I mean there there are times where he starts thinking about his sister. Silas? Sial. Sial. Yeah, who's married to Baron Fell. Yep, yep, because he thinks Fell's out there, but... Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah, I, I mean, she's his only family connection, and we don't really have a whole lot of development of his relationship with her. Were they close? Were they not? I don't know. Does he feel guilty about it? Yeah. Probably. But that's not his driving force. Mm-hmm. It's a side I note. catch that. His relationship with her. Okay, close, so... Not, I don't know. Who else does he feel guilty then? about it? Yeah, Probably. well, we haven't talked about Jason But that's Hortfetch. not his driving force. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a side note. Catch that. Okay, so... Who else have we not done? Well, we haven't talked about Jansen or Ketch. jeez. Oh, <laughs> oh, Ketch. <laughs> Lieutenant Ketch, I wish he were real. Because, well, he is real. Okay, sure. In this book, he becomes real. Because <laughs> during that aforementioned scene on Iron Fist, Face makes up a story combining, uh, you know, Piggy's background with the fictitious Lieutenant Ketch. Because as a prank, uh, they made Wedge's Hawkbat calm voice be an Ewok. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to hear it now. Like, I want to... Oh, man. Well, I would wonder, because you said the audiobooks are abridged pretty yes. severely. So this one, again, was also abridged, so I didn't listen to it. I reread it, oh, which was so it was really frustrating. And I wouldn't have known, because it doesn't say that it's abridged on Audible. It was a review where a guy talked about how he was going back to the books, and he was like, this would be great if it weren't abridged. Could you please not abridge it? Yeah, that's so ridiculous, because these books are short and fast anyway. Like, why would you abridge it? And especially these, like, catch moments, which they completely removed from the first book. Yep. And many of Gara Pettithel's points in the first book. Like, this becomes a, like, major driving part of the plot going forward. Like, (sighs) it's crazy that they would do that. I don't, Um, I don't understand. Yeah. But, uh... (laughs) That said, I I love 
the catch parts in this book where you know jansen <laughs> it comes back from coruscant with the uh the, the stuffed ewok and and suddenly it's appearing everywhere and pranking people and then wedge has to like wear it, it to his flight suit <laughs> so that if anybody during this mission for zine happens to look in his cockpit they see an ewok in there not like a human <laughs> and <laughs> so one of the other oh. pirates i'm gonna call him pirates uh, during the battle yeah, yeah comments he's like do you have an ewok pilot well no the, he's <laughs> like he's flying by it's in like the the jumble of uh yeah. you know communications during the battle and wedge is listening to all of them coming through the comm lines and one of them is like that cesspit is that an ewok and wedge <laughs> just replies like bleed and die yub yub <laughs> well he keeps oh. talking to him for a little bit and um, it's, it's oh, well, when he talks with Baron Fell, you mean? No, no, no. He talks to the other leader. Oh, no, he talks to Baron Fell. Yeah. You're right, you're right. Yeah. Um, the other leader was Pro-X. Vibro-X Prime. Vibro-X Prime. Yeah, the Deveronian. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Which yeah. now I know what that is. Thanks, Drew. Oh, yeah, you're welcome. The little <laughs> devil-looking dude in the cantina is a Deveronian in the very, <laughs> very first Star Wars movie. Um but I, I want to kind of go from there and, and keep digging into Wedge because uh, the other big character moment he has in this is when he's talking with Baron Fell, when he's masquerading as Lieutenant Ketch. <laughs> and he's trying to kind of ferret out information about oh, his sister. And, yeah. and it's it's this really fruitless conversation for him that's, you know, it's very frustrating. And he leaves the conversation and leaves the engagement but wondering if because Baron Fell seems so irredeemable here, he's like, I might have to shoot him down and lose any chance of finding out more information about my sister. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a, like, as limited a character arc as Wedge gets in this book, it kind of ends on a, on a down note. It's, it's a lot of frustration for him. He has two major internal conflicts here and doesn't get resolution for either of them. Yeah, I feel, I feel for Wedge here. I really want to know what, what happened to his sister. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh. there, there is an answer to it. Unfortunately, we won't get it in the X-Wing books. But Dang it, Drew. Yeah, we'll, have to, we'll have to get you much, much deeper into the expanded universe before you get there. <laughs> Um, yeah, are there any other characters you want to talk about? Uh, no, no, I think, I think we've covered those. I did want to talk about Kuat, because I didn't quite understand when you first read it to me, what, where Kuat was, what the situation was with Kuat, all that stuff. Yeah, so, it's kind of briefly touched on in the book, but... Kuat Drive Yards and, and the planet Kuat uh, is the starship manufacturer in the galaxy. There are some other major ones. You know, Corellia makes a lot of ships. Fondor, Mon Calamari, obviously, Sullust. But Kuat Drive Yards is the primary producer of Star Destroyers for the Empire. And before that, it was the primary producer of cruisers and destroyers for the Old, uh, the old Republic during the Clone Wars. And so it's in the galactic core, and this is, you know, if we're looking at sort of a top-down view of the galaxy, there are different regions, and, you know, obviously the closer you get to the center of it, 
the the very center is called the deep core and then there's kind of a little ring around that called the galactic core and that's where a lot of the most important planets are that's where kuat is that's where coruscant is that's where karita and anaxis are which are like the biggest imperial academy planets um chandrala corellia you know these these pivotal places in the stars universe and then there there are other regions there's the outer rim the mid rim uh, expansion region, wild space, you know, all that, like Tatooine. The, and then there are the unknown regions, yeah, where um, basically everything the Old Republic didn't chart, and there are a lot of kind of mysterious alien species out there, and that's where Grand Admiral Thrawn and his species, the Chiss, come from. So, uh, but but in this book, everything's pretty much concentrated in the core worlds, and Kuwata is one of those. So Okay, and... Zinj has been going around further out? Yes. He's been he's been building his empire more in like the uh, the outer rim and wild space in the mid rim. Um his kind of major planet is Dathomir, which is much further out. Uh sort of in not in the unknown regions, but an unknown planet, like very wild. Uh wasn't a whole lot of colonization there or anything like that. So. Okay, okay. Starting to understand. And Kuat is controlled originally by the Imperials. Yes. Right? Okay. Yeah, so Kuat was like a main supporter of the Republic, and then when the Republic became the Empire, they remained with the Empire and were the major producer of Imperial Star Destroyers. Okay, I think I get it. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, so do you want to kind of talk about our three favorite scenes for the book? Sure. Okay. Do you want to start or do you want me to? Oh, I want to end. You want to end. Okay. So my three favorite scenes in this book, if you had asked me this question a decade ago, would be very different from what they are now. So my third favorite scene now is probably still when uh, Wedge, like, makes Jansen help him put on Lieutenant Ketch because it's just so funny and, and I will never get over the whole, like, you know, it's a felony on some worlds to wear an, e- an Ewok as a swimsuit. And then he keeps going. Like, he has, like, three lines yeah. after that. Oh, it's so great. Um, like, something about firing. Like, you can... Yeah. Uh, and then my second favorite scene in this is when Dia and Face and Kel are on the shuttle heading back after Kasten has died and they've wrapped up their mission on Iron Fist. And Face is like trying to help Dia, you know, trying to keep her alive mentally and physically. And then my favorite scene now is, is that scene with face and Fanon the night before it's this discussion of sort of the, the mentality of soldiers and, and the realities of warfare and what it can do to your life and what it can do to your mental state and how it can affect your own perception of yourself. And it's so heartbreaking in, in that one scene, seeing what it's done to Fanon and how Face can't even really do anything. But I will say, honorable mention, on a, on a happier note, I loved the dance. Dang it, I was going to bring that, that up. That Ron put on. So. 
So I I love the dance too, and yeah. I love Wedge walking by as he's dealing with <laughs> yeah. the information from Zinge, and he's he's serious and he's thinking about like how are we gonna handle this, blah blah blah, and he and he sees Runt painting the floor of the mess <laughs> hall, <laughs> and he's like, uh, what? What are you doing? <laughs> and Runt's like, we're doing a ceremony. Yeah. Uh, just like a, a thock wash ri- ritual and runs like uh, sometimes <laughs> <laughs> it's not exclusive to us though <laughs> i just oh i love rut and his his mini minds honestly remind me of legion oh yeah i can see it yeah mm-hmm. i oh runt is so cool i want more time with him but yeah. but I love that he brought everybody together because he recognized that it was important right. and sets up this dance. <laughs> yeah. And then and and his explanation is perfect because this is not a way that I ever would have thought of this. Is like he's like we have been focused on death. Mm-hmm. There's been lots of dying and I think the race need to focus on life. And what brings up life more than mates? Yep. Mates are life. You know, you produce life with a mate. And he's like, so this is a ceremony that I thought, hoped, would help us remember life. Yeah, and Ugh. masterful bit of writing on Austin's part, tying this moment back to not only Caston's death, because this happens right after that, and, and how it helps Wraith morale rebound, but also even further back to Wedge's conflict where he doesn't have a mate in his life. He doesn't have life. Yes. As a focus. It's all about death and killing and duty. And so, yeah. Oh. Okay, I was going to have that be my number one. Oh, it could Because it's a positive yeah. and, <laughs> and the others are negative. <laughs> so what are your others? Oh. Probably Fanon and Face. Yeah. The night before? The or... night before. Okay. Just that scene where Fanon doesn't want help. He doesn't want anybody to be there for him. He's just wallowing and it hurts. Mm-hmm. And, and Face tries and just realizes for the first time, like, this is what's really been on my friend's mind. Like, this is my best friend, and and I yeah. can't help him. Yeah. Oh, that hurt. What else? Ugh. So you have one more scene? Mm. I'm trying to think of, like, because I don't want to do the same scenes, but they're pretty big, you know? They're really like good. Like, Dia's <laughs> scene. Yeah. Yeah. With Face, where Face saves her, and she's like... She's got her blaster pointed about, at her skull. What about the end scene? Oh, I really love the end scene. I told you that last night, didn't yeah. I? Yeah, you did. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, I love the end scene where Face... So, <laughs> Face gets a trophy um, for... The mechanic's nightmare. <laughs> mechanic's nightmare. Because <laughs> he was... Like welded in he his own He was practically yeah. welded into the cockpit. And they had to separate like the ship from him. And yeah. they were both just so horribly damaged. Damaged. <laughs> They're saved. They're safe. Everything ends on a positive. Thank goodness. Yeah. Because yeah. it needed to. I mean, this is a 
I don't know. Could I call it a happy book overall? Uh, Ooh. I don't know. Not don't like Starfighters of Adamar. Adamar is. You got so much happier. That's book. a happy book. This is uh This mm, is not a happy book. Too much. Too much sadness. Yeah. In fact, I think this is the saddest of the Wraith books. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Back to happy note. You ready for this? Okay. We're going to go into the final draft with this quote from the All book. Right. Okay. 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 So, this is where Face is playing his role as a pirate. And he starts to say, fire at will. And may... Oh, and he can't say, may the force be with you. So instead he says, may we drink from the skulls of our Esmies tonight. <laughs> Here's to that. Here's to that. May we drink to the skulls of our enemies. From the skulls. <laughs> From the skulls. Jeez Louise. I cannot get it right. Oh. Mm. Well, so what are you drinking then? So I'm drinking Resolution. It's from Breckenridge Brewery in Colorado. Uh, it's a blueberry acai golden ale. And mm. it is really nice and drinkable. Can I have a sip? Yeah. ABV is uh, 3.5%. Ooh, very light. Yeah, very light. And I picked this beer Mm. because I was thinking... Oh, that's a hot tub beer if I've ever tasted one. Exactly. (laughs) I was thinking of Lara and her resolution to finally, I guess, live for herself and not be the perfect intelligence agent that she was raised to be sure yeah i like it yeah i like it a lot i mean as you know i mean lara is my favorite character in these books so anything you're you're bringing on that pertains to her i'm gonna be a fan of yeah absolutely okay your beer yeah so i am drinking a hoppy lager today from true brewing company in denver colorado and true is quickly becoming one of my uh, favorites in Colorado. They are a tiny little hole in the wall place, you know, like off Broadway, downtown Denver, Uh, (laughs) heavy metal themed. Like you go in and they're blasting like death metal and stuff. It's it's (laughs) all like dark and they have all this iconography (laughs) and and it's, it's tons of fun. But on top of that, they are really, really good. They are, they're doing great stuff with like yeast and spontaneous fermentation and, uh, and this beer is no different. It's a 5.6% lager. That, that hoppiness is very present. Um, you know, really, really tasty. Very drinkable. Uh, but this is, I, I mean, it's not even fair. The, the name of this beer is not even fair. It's called In a Galaxy Far, Far Away. <laughs> <laughs> So, because <laughs> why not? Yeah, it, it, I had to bring it on. I I was you know just in the in the liquor store the other day, uh, buying a Bourbon County Stout, and I saw it on the shelf like you know just just down the row from the Goose Island stuff, and I was like, well, I know what I'm bringing on our next Star Wars episode. <laughs> this is good. I like this. Yeah, very uh, very happy, but balanced. But yeah, balanced and good. It's not like. It's not like you would expect an IPA or, or like an American Pale Ale or something where it's just like super bitter hops or super fruity hops. It's not hazy and, and milkshakey like some of the New England IPAs are. There isn't lactose added to it. So it's it's a very um, 
kind of traditionally flavored beer. It's, it's, I mean, I don't know the actual ingredient list in this. I would not be surprised if it adheres to the Reinheitsgebot, the, you know, the German purity laws where it's just, you know, like hops, yeast, barley, water, like, you know, your, your standard beer ingredients. So it, it tastes like a beer and, uh, and it just tastes like a really good beer. And it has a silhouette of yeah. the Death Star. Yes. <laughs> just, you know. Yeah. So I think that brings us to the end of our episode. This has been episode 48 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Next up, we will be going back to the Wheel of Time. Uh, Rob will be coming back on and we'll be covering the Path of Daggers up through the chapter called The Law. So a little bit more than halfway through Path of Daggers. Um, you know, if you appreciate what we're doing, if you want to help us out, help you know with the costs of hosting the podcast and paying Danny and Pat for our artwork and sound engineering, check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash inkingoutloud. We've got a bunch of fun benefits you can get there. Early access to episodes. We have monthly short episodes on general fantasy topics or short stories. And starting this year, we are also doing a monthly uh, exclusive short fiction release. Either Rob or I will post a short story, a bit of flash fiction, or an excerpt, you know, maybe a chapter from one of our novels. So if you want to, you know, check out the stuff we're writing as well, go, go find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash inkingoutloud. As always, I'm your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my special guest, Lauren McCaffrey. Thank you, guys. And we will catch you next time. <laughs>